Okay. So this this shear is actually a shear I've wanted to give for a very long time. Um, basically, a lot of it is going to be off of based on this book, Metahalacha. Um, some of it is going to be my own thoughts combined with it. Some sources that are briefly mentioned, I'm going to use a lot more here. Um, basically, it's Rabbi Moshe Kapel. Um, he created this idea, and he created this idea of how halacha works, actually comparing it to computer science logic. Um, I'm not going to go too much into the computer science logic. If you want to, if you want to borrow it, you can read more into the computer science yeah, logic. Um, so we're not going to go too much into it, but we'll use some of the ideas. Um, and what what I think is particularly cool about it is that from what I've noticed, uh, it fits everything I've ever seen. Um, usually when people make like ideas of what halacha is about and what Jewish law is about and what it's supposed to be about, generally they fail in certain aspects. Um, when they say it's a, Whenever they say it's about one thing, it doesn't work in this case or works generally. This is an idea that I've seen so much that it works that the last two Jewish articles that I, 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 literally the last two Jewish articles I read were Source 11 and Source 12, and I quoted both of them because it was just like the last two days, the two last two articles I read fit perfectly in what we're doing. Um, and the idea of insert controversy here is I really believe like we can talk about anything, literally anything, and it'll, we can fit it within this framework and it'll work. Um, and it'll work well with controversies of the past and controversies that are happening right now. So first we have to like build the idea. We have to build what is this concept that we're trying to say halacha is about, what is it like? So the best way to do that is to go origin story, right? Whenever you wanna find out what something's about, you go to the beginning. So the halacha, the beginning of halacha essentially is Har Sinai, is Mount Sinai, where God gives the Torah to Moses and we're not exactly sure what he gives to Moses, but we know he gives uh, some type of written law and some type of oral law. Um, why we know he gives some oral law, one, because the text seems to say it, um, but also, um, more importantly, it's just the text is confusing. Uh, there's so many parts of, of, um, of the Torah that without an oral tradition next to it, um, it doesn't really make that much sense. So, we know there's some type of oral law, but what is it? Um, so I wanted to first pose that question. Um, like, what did, what did God give to Moses on Har Sinai? Like, was it, I don't know. Any, any thoughts? I think it's all made up. What do you mean? I feel bad saying that. Why can't people, you know, sit down and write it? Okay. Come up with these uh, things together. Okay, so that's going to be a like whole nother... over generation. You know so, what I mean? like, we're actually going to get into that to some extent. To some extent, and actually some of the sources we're going to talk about actually talk about that idea of that happening, on, at least on some level. Any other ideas? Maybe just more specification. What do you mean? Just kind of like if you go a lot of the halachas that are in, are in Torah, it's just very vague. 
Like, for example, to fill in, you know, like, if you just read for, from what the Torah says, it's it, you would have no idea it's boxes, you know. So mm -hmm. maybe specifications, like, of the, this is what this is what to fill in is, or like, Lulavanasar, this is how it's done. Like, I think this is more of the basic specifications. Okay, so what God gave to Moses was some, he gave the text, and some, the oral tradition were just some details on that text. Yes. Some. All? <laughs> I don't know. Any, you were going to say something? Yeah. Um, what I was always taught was either it's um, every single like detail of halacha down to today, like a historically, yeah. um, for any question that will ever be asked, or it was like there's the written Torah and there's like some ways by which you derive what you're supposed to do logically. Okay, so that's basically the two ideas we're going to see, and are kind of the two things um, that Daniel and Zach just said. Um, you were kind of saying like, oh, he gave lots of details. How many details? Maybe he gave all of them, or maybe he gave very little. Maybe he got, gave very little all, all the way on the other side, and a lot of this is man-made, and a lot of these rules are created um, just through people, through the generations. And so literally, that's the first two sources we're going to see. Um, in the book, he goes through a whole bunch. I picked one of each, um, just just because they're easier. Because um, otherwise, we'd have a source sheet that was like 10 pages long. And I tried to fit it on two sides. Um, so would anyone like to read source one? In, in English or Hebrew, however you. And in English? And God said to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, saying, what does the idea of Shemitah do next to uh, Mount Sinai? We're not, we're, not all, we're not all the commandments related there. Rather, just as with Shemitah, all the generalities and specifics were given at Sinai, so too all the commandments were given at Sinai. So what the Sifra and Rashi, Rashi quotes this idea, um, the Pasuk, the, the verse says, um, these are the things God said to Moses on Har Sinai, hmm. on Mount Sinai, and then talks about Shemitah with a whole bunch of details. What's so Shemitah uh, is every seven years the... Um, oh, like the break. Yeah, so the land rests and they don't farm. So they had all those rules, and in, in the text... It says that every seven years you, you wait, you don't, you don't farm, and then it goes into a whole bunch of detail. And so the question that this text is asking, why, why do we hear, okay, these are the things said at Mount Sinai, and then we hear about this random law about every seven years you rest your, your land. It seems to be random. And so the answer it gives is that it's random, but it's random on purpose. Just like this random law has all these things, all these details were given on Mount Sinai, so too every law is like that. When the, uh, the, the Torah just says, um, honor your mother and your father, and we have an oral tradition of certain things that might mean, like standing up when they come into the room or not sitting in their seat and all these things. Those two were given at Har Sinai. We have laws of tefillin. It doesn't say what color. 
we like we have a tradition that it's black, so too that's in Har Sinai, everything. And it's exactly the first idea um, that you were saying is that all this, all these details, everything, all the details were all given at Har Sinai, even if we kind of made it later, even if it's a historical, where it was clearly thought of later, but the Midrash, and this source says it, and many others say a little more explicitly, that literally every conversation, every rule that's made up in the future is, was really said then, and Moses didn't relay it afterwards. The second source is exactly the opposite. Right. So we're going to get, how in the world is that's that true? That's just like, yeah. that is omniscient. Right. So, but, but how is yeah, it possible? No, there's no way to like prove or disprove right. something like that. So there's no way to disprove it. That's the it, it. You'd have to know how in the world. Does it I matter? Mean, but does it even matter? Is you will see it does. I, I think it does. So the, the second source is exactly the opposite. And it's exactly, um, it's exactly the second idea. And kind of um, one of the issues that we're bringing up. Um, would someone like to read source two, either Hebrew or English? Yeah. <clears throat> I'm reading the English. The Shemot Rabbah, uh, 41.6. Could Moses have learned the entire Torah? About the Torah is written, longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Could then Moses have learned it in 40 days? Rather, God told Moses general principles. So this source says kind of the opposite. That... It's, it's utterly, it's like ridiculous to think that somebody could have learned in 40 days 3,000 years of tradition, right? Just in this bookshelf alone, which I have like some books, some svarim, like just to learn all that in 40 days is like absurd. So how in the world could somebody have learned everything in 40 days? Clearly he didn't. Rather, what he learned was general principles, kind of these general ideas either it doesn't exactly say but either how to learn from the text or maybe just general ideas that would help Moses teach the people and the people and it would filter down and then all our details now are kind of learned from those general principles so which one is it right it's two opposite ideas um, that don't seem to work with each other However, source three kind of melds them together in a, in a weird way. You might have seen this. You might have heard of this story before. Um, and and I'll, I'll read it because it's a, it's a little longer. It's the Talmud in Menachot 29b. When Moses went to receive the Torah, he found God putting crowns on the letters. So if you, if you look in a Sefer Torah, in the actual Torah school, so they, they're on top of the letters, or at least little um, tagim. Um, these little crown, crowns on top of them. And Moses saw, Moses said, who is restraining you? God, why are you putting certain crowns on certain letters? You should be able to do whatever you want, right? There are no rules for crowns on letters. God, respo God responded, there will be a person in later generations named Akiva ben Yosef, Rabbi Akiva, who will expound each and every one. <coughs> Moses replied, show him to me. Okay, I want to see this. God responded, turn around. So I assume Moses turned around, and Moses sat in the eighth row of Rabbi Akiva's study hall, but could not follow the conversation. 
he felt he felt faint. So Moses was upset, you know, like he was he was learning Torah, but he was in this conversation he couldn't understand. He had gotten the Torah from God, but he couldn't understand this conversation. Granted, a lot a lot a lot longer in the future. At one point, the students asked Rabbi Akiva, "From where did you derive that?" Rabbi Akiva answered, "It is transmitted from Moses at Sinai." And Moses was placated. So Moshe himself is in a conversation with Rabbi, in, with Rabbi Akiva, much later on in history. He doesn't understand what's going on. Moshe himself doesn't understand what's going on. But Rabbi Akiva is saying, I know all this because it was told to Moshe at Sinai. So it's, it seems to be these two ideas kind of butting heads. Where Moshe doesn't understand the details, but the details are coming from Moshe. So it seems like from Moshe's perspective, source two is right, but from Rabbi Akiva's perspective, source one is right. So which one is it? Right? Sorry. Yeah. I read this a little bit differently. Okay. Where, yeah. I mean, how many years, I read it at, it's, the way I see this is like us trying to understand the Constitution, <laughs> like this argument over the Constitution in modern days. Yeah. You know, and so maybe he's turning around and he's seeing it's this isn't the same thing that I wrote down because it's so many years. It's, it's a different it's a different application now. So he's like, it's so different from what I written, maybe because of the time. So I think we're going to... So he doesn't even recognize it anymore. I think we're going to get to something like that, and I think that's going to be part of what we're going to be talking I think it is a lot like the Constitution, mm-hmm. and it's very similar. Um, but but we're going to get to that when we, we have to first answer this question, and we're going to get to it. Mm-hmm. We're gonna, but we're going to get to something very much like that. Yeah. I never understood the story. Like, I don't see why Moshe Urbano is, like, relieved to hear that all of this stuff that makes no sense to him is being credited or blamed on him when he has no idea what they're talking about yeah. right? like if it was it me still it's still happening but like he doesn't recognize it though like if it was me i'd be like what's wrong with you people like i didn't say i didn't teach any of this stuff like i don't even unless he knew that was gonna happen knew what was going to happen. Like, knew it was going to get more and more complicated and knew there were going to be details that he didn't know. But but the fact that it's still connected to what he was saying is what he wanted, which is kind of the like what he... Of it. Maybe when he was hearing it he, and he had no idea what was going on, he's like, what's going on in oh, the world? Like, oh, are they just creating a whole new... Are they just creating a whole new... A whole new religion and all that? And when he heard mm-hmm. it's coming from Moshe, saying, oh, okay, that there's still... He, he knows that there's a process that he was taught, so he's always, so the process I was taught, this is how it, it you know, I don't know, for 15, 2000, you know, that was, mm. later, this is how it evolved. Right. But so that kind of changes the meaning of, like, whenever they say it's a law transmitted from Moses at Sinai, like, whenever <coughs> they say that, it, they seem to be saying, like, oh, your opinion, we're not even going to consider it because my opinion... It does, well, yeah. It so does make a question on that. Like, like what that, does that phrase? What does that phrase mean in general? Like, because um, that's based on like this, a whole other question. It's a good well, question. That depends who says it, right? Yeah. Everybody can say that's what the Bible says. Yeah, no, but like when they're when they seem to be like 
using like halachal Moshe Misinai as an argument, it's like it's usually it's like, like a stopping point. It's a gold it's card. Like, yeah, yeah, it's a trump card. Like yeah, trump card. Right. And if if what it means out. is no it's derived from <laughs> something, but not like actually said. <laughs> Then it's not really the trump card that they're making it out to be, and maybe maybe it's not. I don't know. So I'm gonna give an answer to this um, that Rabbi Capel does in his book, um, based on an idea that you've probably heard of before, um, the, of the idea of the living Torah. Um, so this is just one source in Avot to Rabbi Natan, which is one of those like little tractates that's at the end of the Gemara that nobody really uh, goes into. Um, but it's found in a couple other places. He actually quotes it from Tvarim Rabbah, which is a Midrash. It's, this idea is found in all over the place. The Torah is called life. Shenamar, as it says, is a tree of life for those who hold it. What does it mean for something to be alive? And I mean that in like the most general sense, but I kind of mean that in like a human sense. Like, how do you know somebody's alive? They uh, respond to change. What do you mean? If, if you provoke them, do they have like, a response? If you put them in a situation they've never been before, do they... Do they stay the same or do they change? Oh, okay. I don't know about that. You have people on life support who don't respond to change. Are they alive? Some would argue they're not. I mean, they're breathing. Do well, they respond so to what's going on? So how do you know somebody has consciousness? How do you know? How do you know? Good question. Ask right. someone. You can measure their wavelengths. Huh? You can measure their wavelengths. What wavelengths? Their brain, their neurological. Okay. So that, so, that, so that would be, right. that would like constitute moving. So well, what? Change. Flowers are flowers yeah. life. They don't have sentience. We'll work with the idea of consciousness. So, I mean, you, what you're how do you know something is conscious versus something that's not conscious? You mean sentience or? Like, yeah. Like, how do you know some? How do I, so you're talking to me. How do you know I'm not a robot? Like, how do you know? Oh, how can you tell? What makes something human or makes something alive? What What makes? Because I'm not. If I'm a robot, I'm not really alive. How do you know? Right. So there's an idea in, in AI. I actually re watched Chappie last week, which is this movie about somebody's able to create an AI that's alive, um, artificial intelligence that's alive. And the way they define it is a person can feel and think, right? So a, an, a robot can think, but it can't feel. And because of that, when you think, if you only think, you're working within certain rules and you can only work within certain rules. So a robot essentially would wake up at 7.30 in the morning every morning no matter what because there's never a time where it wouldn't. But a person might not feel great one day, might hit the snooze one extra time because they're tired, might, um, might magically wake up 10 minutes earlier. So the person can feel something at different times and therefore will at react in a way that you wouldn't just do if you were just thinking, um, but you'd also do if you were feeling. And so the way he explains that, um, there's modable behavior, which means you do the same thing. You can model it, right? I can say like, okay, every morning we're going to wake up at 7.30. Um, we're going to do this. We're going to brush our teeth. We're going to do this. We're going to make rules that'll fit a model. And there's non-modable behavior, 
which you can't model, it's just random. And what makes something conscious, what makes something conscious is if they have both. If they have modable behavior and non-modable behavior. So a person generally will fit some type of pattern, right? You're gonna eat, not maybe not all, all the time, but in general, you're gonna eat lunch and dinner, maybe breakfast in general if you eat breakfast, but you're gonna eat you're gonna eat your meals at like general times because you get hungry at the same times. But some days you might not feel great and you might skip lunch or some days at 10 in the morning you might get really hungry and might eat your lunch early, right? You're gonna have modable behavior that in general is gonna fit, but you're also gonna have non-modable behavior at times that won't fit a pattern at all. So you can have deterministic and non-deterministic behavior from machines very easily. How's this different from the concept you're putting forward? Because you and mean you can you have like a random number generator that will determine the response. Well, you can't. You can't really have a random number generator. Right. Like it doesn't. Maybe it's it's so going to be based on some some string. Uh, it's going to be based on event. some algorithm, and if you like, if you enter the same the same formula and at the same point it would be the same each time like it would follow but, a pattern but, but, but what you're saying you'd never be able to tell right? Oh, right so so no no it's a good point it's actually somebody talks about um is is you can represent non-modable behavior you can pretend to to be to feel but that only works for limited periods of time if you had an infinitely long period of time you wouldn't You'd be able to model it eventually, but with a person, if a person lived forever, you wouldn't be able to model their behavior completely. You'd be able to model their behavior 95% of the time, but you wouldn't be able to get there, or even 99, but you wouldn't be able to get there because the person just feels. So the argument that we'd like to put forth that we'll then see, we'll fit it back into stuff, is that the Torah, halacha, is modable generally, has things, has rules, there are texts, there are rules that fit within it, but it also feels. There's also an intuitive nature of how halacha is supposed to work and how it should work in the future that's separate from those rules and sometimes affects those rules and sometimes the rules affect it. So, fitting it within source number three, Moshe, when he was in Har Sinai, got the ultimate feel of what halacha was supposed to be. He wasn't given every rule. He wasn't given, um, he wasn't even necessarily told that tefillin are supposed to be black. But what he was given was a, an intuitive understanding of what should happen. And so, he sees tefillin, he's like, that should be black because that makes sense with all these other things that I know, right? When you have an intuitive understanding, you can relate things to new situations um, that you wouldn't normally, right? So like, um, I mean, this you do this whenever you play any game or anything, but you do this all the time where you have intuitive understandings of things and you're able to react to new situations in a way you couldn't if you learned it from a textbook. So a way he explains this, um, he uses um, like language, right? So on some level, when a child learns from language as a little kid, so they're learning 
how to speak, and they were learning how to speak really well, even though they never learned anything from a textbook. Right? Your, your average six-year-old can talk, but they never really learned English. Meanwhile, somebody that's from a different country spends, got his doctoral thesis in English literature, um, might not necessarily be able to speak the same way that six-year-old can because they learned it as a set of rules while the kid learned it as intuitive understanding of like how words are supposed to work. So those two things can, are supposed to coexist, right? You're supposed to know your grammar and also have an intuitive understanding of English. Um, and that's how you're able to speak really well is when both of those two things come together. So when Moshe had an intuitive understanding of Torah, and then when he saw all these rules that had been put down, he was like, that intuition really fits with what Rabbi Akiva is saying. And so our first two sources make sense. He was only given klalim, but klalim means an intuition, an understanding of how things work. And so in some way, he was given all the details. He wasn't actually told, okay, this is this detail, this is this detail, but he was given an understanding. So like, just as an example that I thought was interesting, um, how much matzah do you eat on Pesach, right? So there's all these different things on how, how much you're supposed to eat. Um, you're supposed to eat this much, you're supposed to eat this much of matzah. It can get like ridiculous, it can get crazy. And it's gotten to the level where like you have to eat like two thirds of a, it's like, like be nice to people's stomach. Um, but what's probably true is that Moshe, when Moshe was asked that first Passover, how much matzah are you supposed to eat? He could answer that question. He might not have been able to say, okay, it's this amount of flour and this. He might not have been able to do that, but he could have said, is this enough matzah? And he could have been like, yeah, that's definitely enough. You know, he could have definitely said, that's enough, even if he didn't know that's enough. So, I just want to go through a couple applications of how this works because it fits with a whole bunch of things. Um, the first is an idea um, of forgetting laws. Um, this comes up one, two, three, four, five, um, five different times in the Talmud. Um, I quoted one, but there's four others um, of of times when the Torah was forgotten. Um, would someone like to read source five? Volunteer tribute. <laughs> go ahead. Originally, when the Torah was forgotten by Israel, Ezra arose and reestablished it. And when it was again forgotten, Hillel reestablished it. And when it was again forgotten, Rabbi Chia and his sons reestablished it. So, like, Torah is forgotten and then remembered. Um, the Megillah one is that it was forgotten when the Jews went into Israel, when Joshua brought the Jews into Israel, but then Odniel ben Knaz, who was the first of the Shoftim, of the judges, um, he reestablished it. Um, there's all these different times in history where things were forgotten and then reestablished. It's funny that Josiah isn't in there, isn't it? He, he... I don't think he's in this one. I think he's in the Tamura one. Yeah. There's, there are, so this is just like one part that had a bunch, so I like this one. Um, but uh, but there, there were others um, in the other sources. Um, and the question is, what, what was forgotten? Like, Jews just forgot that they were supposed to, uh, I don't know, wave Lulav and Etrog? They just like forgot about it? Or they just like forgot 
I don't know, any pick pick and any mitzvah. They just like forgot they were weren't allowed to eat meat and milk together. And then somebody was like two hundred years later, like, oh yeah, remember that? <laughs> so a way we can a way we can put this within this framework is that there's there's always an intuitive understanding about halacha. There's like an intuitive understanding. And sometimes thing ha- things happen in the world that mess with that intuition. That sometimes big events happen, the Beit HaMikdash, the temple is destroyed, the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed. Um, things like that happen where like intuition... Inquisition. Just, right, the Inquisition, any, any like big thing, the Crusades, any of these type of things, um, these big things that happen that mess with the intuition. So what does somebody have to do when the intuition has been messed over? They have to come and formalize the rules. They have to come and say, this is actually the rule. This is actually how much matzah you're supposed to eat on Passover. This is because there wasn't this intuition anymore of how to do it. And actually, the word visodita, visoda, that I have here, but I translated as reestablished, it, it doesn't, reestablished isn't really the right translation. It's reformulated or rewrote down. Um, so they're remaking halacha because it wasn't made before. They needed to establish it. Okay, can I ask you a question? Sure. Could you say instead of forgetting the laws, ignoring the laws? So you could go through that. You could go through that possibility. Because um, if every time the Torah is forgotten, maybe it's not every time. But it seems that a time when the Torah would be forgotten would be a time either when you are struggling for survival. So mm-hmm. like these mitzvot, come on, a lot of them are a luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, or when you're living in such a state of affluence where you're like, I don't like I don't need to do this and this and that. Right. So the the interesting part though is is during these times we don't necessarily see that being the case. I that mean, neither of them. Um, not I, I, I mean in three. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, we don't really necessarily see that being the case where where things were just like not being kept anymore. So um, there everyone's are, living like in a generally. I mean, maybe certain. Oh no, no, definitely not. Like um, Ezra, he's coming, bringing the Jews back to Israel after the first exile. Um, but but we don't get this sense that so people aren't keeping like the Torah. Torah. Keeps being given, reminded of when you're like exactly trying to bring them the spirits back. Yeah, so you need to reestablish it. You need to rewrite it down because. People don't remember anymore the same you way. Could, you could, I mean, you could have both of what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, we're like, not, it's not. Like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't forget it immediately. So, like, it could very well be that, like, things got ignored or laxed or for whatever reason. And then generations down, you know, it was forgotten because it wasn't being practiced right. anymore. And then it was, re- like, and you so, can have both of those. And things. so, therefore, there was no intuition about yeah. what should be. So somebody had to come and literally write down and be like, "This is these are the rules that we had 50 years ago that you don't remember anymore. But since I'm 70, I still remember. And I can write it down. I can write a book. And I can say this is what it was. Because um, you can't really, like, intuit what, what it should be. And your life. Yeah. It's striking that the same word for Moses is confusing is used for, for the forgetting, like in three and in five. 
in the, in the Hebrew, if my grammar isn't betraying me. Uh, where? One second. Oh, Tishkachu. And then, yeah. Yeah, he felt faint. Shachach? Yeah, it's a, interesting. It's a, it's is that a, the it's same? It's a rare word, isn't it? I, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if it's the same Shoresh. I'm not, I don't have the Hebrew grammar. Ooh, you are on point. But it could be. <laughs> that would be really interesting. Something I need to look into. Because if that's, if it fits, that'd be really cool, actually. Because um, that's what it is. It's Moshe... What we're saying is Moshe not remember remembering, but yeah. not remembering means but in our formulation. Remembering, it's something a reflexive form of exactly. remembering. So right, it's right. like getting very deeply confused or something. Right. Okay, so how do how do disputes happen? Right? If we say that there's an intuitive form of halacha, that there's this like idea that we should all kind of get just like kind of intuitively understand what it should be, what the law should be. So how does, how does, how do we, why are there so many arguments? Why, why, are, we, why are we arguing about everything? <laughs> so then, <laughs> why, <laughs> whatever. Um, so, so in source six, um, I just left the English because it's long and again, I would have, uh, I would have, I was, gonna, I was running out of room. Um, so, what this describes, the beginning, it, this essentially, de- this source essentially describes the beginning of disputes. When people started arguing with each other about halacha, that beforehand, like with Moshe, there wasn't much arguments, at least in the law sphere, right? Moses had an intuitive sense of what the halacha should be, so you didn't really, there wasn't questioning other than your couple cases, God, couple couple cases um, throughout the Torah, um, but it's rare. The, the daughters when um, right when they um they their father their father died yeah, and there were no sons to inherit and so there was a question of whether the daughters would like whether the daughters would, would inherit, inherit their father's, father's lands property and they and they, they win and, and they, did. No, they did they did they did it's an interesting yeah. story but for another day okay. yeah it wasn't obvious at the time right, right. so the Talmud and Tamura discusses this idea. When Yosef ben Yoezer and Yosef ben Yochanan died, so these are two of the Zugim, um, there was a period in time where these pairs of important people, so like Hillel and Shammai, um, so the first of the, well, I guess one of the main ones are Yosef ben Yoezer and Yosef ben Yochanan. So when they died, Eshkoliot, this phrase Eshkoliot, we're going to ask what that means, came to an end. What is the meaning of Eshkoliot? What does it mean that this phase of Eshkoliot came to the end? It means that a man who, whom all is contained, Ish Shekolbo, right? That there was no longer people that contained everything. What does that mean? Rabbi Huda said, all the Eshkoliot that arose since the time of Moshe until their, until their deaths, Yosef ben Yoazer and Yosef ben Yochanan, studied like Moshe himself. From that time onward, they did not study like him. So until that time, there wasn't a lot of arguments because there were people that studied like Moshe. But has, has it not been taught after the death of Moshe, if those who announced it unclean were the majority, they declared it unclean and vice versa? Didn't we rule that after Moses, the majority rules? 
what does it mean? That their hearts, Liba, diminished, but what they had learned, but what they had learned, they learned like Moshe himself. So until, until Yosef ben Yoazer and Yosef ben Yochanan, they had, a, they had this liba, their hearts diminished, which we'll, we'll discuss what that means. Um, and, but anything they knew from beforehand, they learned like Moshe, and everything else afterwards, they couldn't learn like Moshe. So what does that mean? It's kind of what we're saying, what we've been saying, that they had an intuitive sense for a lot of halacha, and anything they had an intuitive sense for, they knew. They just knew. They had this idea. But everything else, their hearts, their feelings about halacha, what they're feeling about what law should be, diminished. And they didn't learn that like Moshe anymore. They couldn't learn that intuitively. Rather, they had to formulate it. They had to write it down. They had to make rules. And when you make rules, that's when you argue. Because if I just say, you eat matzah until you're full, uh, you, 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 you bench. When, when do you say blessing after meals? You say blessings after meals, the text says, the Torah says, v'achalta v'savata v'erachta, that you eat, you're satiated, and you, and you bless. So the intuitive understanding would be once I'm full, if I'm full, I, I, I bench afterwards. If I'm not full, I don't bench afterwards. Once I make a rule, if I say, okay, if you eat this much, then you bench, then I can argue with that, right? I can say, no, it's really this much, or no, it should be a little more, it should be a little less. But if I just say it's until you're full, it's so vague that it, it's like an intuitive understanding, that'll mean different to everyone. Um, on some level, it should be. Right. But if we want to make a rule so it's standardized, then all of a sudden you create arguments. Exactly. So how does this happen? So how is so so I think we've created something, so now we can actually talk about the juicy stuff. Oh, so I just have to this is the part that makes me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're gonna <laughs> we're we're gonna get to it. No, it's interesting. Cause it, I have a question about yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, until Rabbi Yosef ben Yoazer and Yosef ben Yochanan they died, they all learned with the same um, heart as Moshe. But mm-hmm. what happened after that? Like, why were they the last ones to have that? Why specifically were they the last no, like, ones? What happened? What what like event happened that caused people to be faith apart? Right. What's so going on I I think it's it's um it's it's the Second Temple period where where the Second Temple um, is being destroyed. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this means anything. But it might be earlier. Yeah, I mean, it's like we don't have the Hebrew, but the way you transliterated the, their heart, you have liba, like it's her heart. Um, so maybe it's not there, like maybe unless it's, it's Aramaic. The oh. right, yeah, it's Aramaic. Oh, okay, liba, liba with an aleph, not with an. Uh, yeah, good point. Okay, so how do how is halacha? How do, how do we do this for the future? Right, if we have it for the past, how do we do it for the future? So. The, the there's what, what we're going to call we're going to call this survival of the fittest halacha it's what uh, he calls it in this book um, where halacha is literally in the end of the day determines and this is obviously true um, is the end of the day determines is what wins right H- history is decided by the victors um, like by definition Jewish law is what people end up practicing right 
So this actually, this idea fits in the sources. Um, so would someone like to read source eight? All right. Rabbi Ahabar Hanina Sefer it is obvious before the creator of the universe that there is none in the generation of Rebbe Meir that his that was his equal. So why did they not decide according to his views? Because his colleagues were not able to fully comprehend them. He could tell them an unclean object was clean and make a case, and that a clean object was unclean and make a case. Right. Rebbe Meir, the Talmud in Erevin, is talking about Rebbe Meir is the best. But no one listen to him, even though they all knew he was the best. <laughs> Why is that? Because, you know, if you, can't, if you can't talk to somebody, if you can't argue with them, if you can't, like, discuss something with them, then their views aren't valuable because they can't, like, go forward, right? I can't use that idea. I can't talk to Rabbi Mayer because he's so good. Right? It's like those professors in college that were so far away from you that you can not really understand. Um, so like, um, Ruby Mayer apparently was like that. Not accessible. Right, he's not accessible. So I can't really understand it, and so it doesn't win. Even though it's the best, even though it's more right, I can't win, it doesn't survive. Was, wasn't that the test for Smecha, though? Maybe in later generations? What do you mean? Um, Memtet mem arguments that are Sheretz's, or Memtet arguments that is Tameh. Yeah. So um, you have to be able to prove um, the, opposite, the opposite way on certain things, um, to prove both sides, that both sides were okay. But I think that was just to understand that you had the knowledge, mm -hmm. that you had the understanding, um, but you're never going to get asked, right? No one's going to ask you if, what, if you're not accessible. The Talmud in Sofrim says a similar idea. A law is not fixed until it becomes the accepted custom. And the statement that a custom can override the law, so a, a, a law doesn't work if it's not custom, right? Survival of the fittest. If it doesn't happen, if people don't do it, it's not the rule. And the statement that a custom can override the law is referring to a custom of experts, but a custom that has no basis in the Torah is nothing more than error in judgment. So it also goes the other way, right? So custom, whatever ends up people doing wins. At the same time, if if it's stupid, if it's like not right, if it doesn't fit within Torah, then it's also not going to win. So it's these two things. It's if there's an intuition that it makes sense that it should be right, and it fits within the law, then that's what wins. That's what survives. Rabbi Meir could give the rules and could do the formulation, but he couldn't do the intuition. And so here we see these two coming together. And source 10, I'm just going to go quickly because these are kind of all the similar idea that, that Rabbah said in the name of Rav Kahana, in the name of Rav, if Eliyahu comes and says you do chalitza with a shoe, chalitza is a ceremony that you do when, um, when a man dies and his wife doesn't have any children. So there's a law that the brother is supposed to marry the, um, the wife to create another, to create a child for him. But there's chalitza, there's a thing that you do um, to make you not need to do that if you don't want to. Um, so, so if Eliyahu comes and says that you do chalitza with a shoe, you do the ceremony with a shoe, you listen to him. Eliyahu is the person that decides. Halacha. If he says you cannot do chalitza with a sandal, do not listen to him. 
for the community has already adopted the custom of using a sandal. Even Eliyahu, even if Eliyahu comes and says that something we're doing is wrong, he's wrong. Even the ultimate decider of halacha is wrong in the face of the community custom. In the face of intuition, in the face of what we kind of understand halacha should be, creating custom, the ultimate lawmaker is still wrong. And so these are just two examples, source 11 and 12, are just two examples, literally the last two articles in Jewish stuff I've read. Um, one is Rabbi Golden, um, one is Rabbi Jeremy Stern. Um, both of them literally say this idea. Um, halakhic change can be prodded, but it must eventually occur, th occur through evolution and consensus <coughs> so that our Judaism will be recognizable as the Judaism of our grandparents and our children's Judaism will be as recognizable as our own. The mandate of every Jewish generation is to fashion a critical balance. A Judaism that enfranchises as many as the generation as possible, yet remains true to the traditions of our people. It has to have an intuition of what we think Torah should be like, and also have like the rules that fit. What was the article about? So it was, a, it was an article, him writing about the RCA with women rabbis. I'm somewhat taking this out of context, I'll be honest. Um, but... <laughs> but um, but I mean, he's saying what he's saying, obviously, but he's actually saying it in the negative. He's saying, um, he, he's saying because, because it's not true. No, no, he's saying it can't be because it's not true. I could also hear this paragraph being the complete opposite, <laughs> the complete pro version, right? That halakha can be prodded, but it uh, occurs through evolution and consensus. So if we can create a consensus for it, then it wins. If we can't create, uh, if we create a consensus against it, then it loses. It's like, it's funny, because he uses it as a, like a darting point against it, but I, I actually was confused, because this kind of could go either way. His second sentence makes it seem like you are supposed to like actively evolve, and, like interact yeah. with this evolution yeah. of halakha and, and kind of... So he's, because he, he's kind of like on the pro movement, but not... All the way, like on he's on, he's uh, on the um, the the pro movement forward, mm -hmm. but not all the way right away. He's in like well, so no, but that's evolution. You go one step at a time. Right. So that's kind of what he's saying. But how much is a step, right? So that's going to be the whole. That's going to be your whole question. And I think women rabbis is actually a perfect right. test case for this. All those issue, issues are exactly that. Couldn't that also be test case for what it's saying about what the community does? Like for, like, for example, if one community, because this whole source is just going into saying it, it's very much dependent on the community, if you can source it in, in, in tradition. So can, would it also be this test case for if one community decides to have, if the shul decides to have a maharat or, or, or a female rap or whatever title the, the community decides is comfortable choosing, then shouldn't not someone else come around and saying what you're doing is wrong, we're not going to... And they might, their shul won't do it. Yeah. And in the end of the day, what's going to decide if Shul's hire right. them? That's what's going to decide if Shul's hire them and right. stay, stay from. Right? That's what's going to decide. And it's, like, it's really that simple. Right. And, um, and all these arguments for and against it kind of feel 
I never get involved with it because I kind of feel it's silly. <laughs> In the end of the day, like you're not deciding for the whole world, so why are you trying to, right? If in in all questions, not just this one, right. in all questions, in the end of the day, you decide based on what shul you go to and what, what your shul does. And you don't decide, like I don't decide what happens in uh, Australia, right? And it's just like not relevant. Philosopher, it's his job. Right. <laughs> um, so Rabbi Jeremy Stern, this was an article about the prenup um, where, uh, right, he's the head of Aura, so of course he wrote an article about the prenup. Basically his rabbi um, came out against the prenup, so he switched shuls. And he writes in an, in an article, literally this was yesterday, yeah. at, at the end of the day, we choose our rabbis, our rabbis don't choose us. We hire our shul rabbis, we are the ones that vote them in to, and sign their contracts. It's up to us to make this a red line issue. Okay, so the prenup, you specifically about that, but I want to brown it. We must hire who, who will not only encourage the use of the halakhic prenups throughout the community, but insist upon their use whenever they officiate. In the end of the day, what decides if the halakhic prenup is going to work? If people use it. That's it. In the end of the day, that's what's going to decide this question, what's going to decide every question. As long as it fits within certain framework, it's going to be decided if people do it. And so I'm doing this year on some level on a, on a, um, as an introduction to responsa. Because on some level, the, what gives rabbis power is the people that ask them. The reason Rav Moshe Feinstein was such a popular figure is because everyone wanted to know what he thought about a question and not the other way around. It wasn't he was so great and therefore everyone asked him. It was everyone asked him and that's what made him the post that he was. And he actually describes that in his introduction to Igris Moshe. He describes this concept of how does he know he's valuable? How does he know he's worthy of answering questions? Literally because everyone's asking him. And so the, the phrase, at the end of the day, we choose our rabbis, you do. And, and the people do. At the same time, the ra- once you ask, the rabbi's there to answer. So in my view, Halakha happens in that blank space of the paper in between the question and the answer um, where somebody decides they're going to ask this rabbi the question and then this rabbi decides that he's, they're going to answer it. And it's in that blank space that Halakha happens, in that part where the two connect, where the intuition of how Halakha should be and this idea of like, I'm not sure, but like as a community, we, we kind of get what we think should happen. And the kind of more legalistic way a rabbi is supposed to answer the question. Um, so if we want to just, if we could throw out one from the past first, because we can say how we do it, like literally any controversy, any question, like throw one out. Can we throw out a question? Prefer- preferably first one from the past, if you can. One that's already been decided. I don't know. I, if- I have a question about Kashrut. Okay, yeah. So, if the rules are established by the community, and the Jewish community is so small, and the greater community of the world is so big, yeah. when will kashrut become obsolete? 
So we're talking about what we're talking about here. We're talking about. But you know what I mean. The the like the, we're such a small little thing that things from the outside are are affecting our daily. The daily laws, anyways. Yeah. You know what I like. All the mitzvot are affected by the world around us, and you don't live in a tiny little. I mean. On some level, the opposite's happening. Actually, more and more things are becoming kosher. Like ironically, the it's kind of like going the other way. What do you mean? Like more, it's becoming more easier and easier to find oh, anything to kosher. kosher. Food. And the interesting thing to follow that is my boxing coach at Starbucks. <laughs> He's Argentinian and he lived in Borough Park for like ten years. So we lived in Borough Park. He never ate pork. Right. It's interesting. Guess, the opposite happening. Because happened. lifestyles are changing a little bit, people are becoming. I just feel. I feel like because there's access to this and this and that, it's almost become a mute point. A little bit. Isn't there or is that? I don't know if that I can't sense. remember what the issue I was reading about, but something related to women something, where it's actually, it was like a, it was looking at how Mush Feinstein listed something and um, Rabo Vadia, and because they were kind of do two different communal contexts, and there, I can't remember what the issue was. Yeah, like hair covering, that's like everyone wants to talk about. It could be. It may have been about like women doing some sort of meets food, mm-hmm. and there was something about you're not supposed to follow what the external community, the non-Jewish community. Well, that's what makes um, us Jewish, right? Like, follow, but like Rabo Vadia didn't have the same communal context where like it was like, I don't maybe it's like 70s with like, American feminist movements, and he didn't have that communal context, so he said it was fine, go ahead, do what you want, because that like connects people to Judaism, and like the motivation of the decision was different. Right. And I don't know. So we're going to get into that a lot throughout the different weeks about how like specific motivations seem to play, and how the intuition comes into play when people are making rules. The intuition of like what's going on around them matters, maybe even equally to what the sources say. I have a great example of yeah. beards. Okay, yeah, go. Is it like, can you shave, can you not shave? Can you so, trim, do rabbis need to have beards? Can so you, there are sources that seem to say that you that you can't shave your beard. And you're, but you're I, supposed to save... So, not not that you, no, not, not, like, you can trim. Yeah, yeah so they never... Save their hair. Yeah, they never shave. Have you heard this? So, so here's the question. I know that some Hasidim don't cut, they burn. Because you're, you're not allowed to snip, you're not use blades. So here's the question, right? Well, you're 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 shaved. You're you're shaved. The reason I don't I'm not shaven <laughs> is because Hannah likes it. <laughs> but, but so right, so we're in Brooklyn, so most people have beards. But like, but like, but but you don't have a beard, right? So how's that okay? Um, you're, I'm like I, I go. It is. They allow shave. Some people like I teach in Williamsburg where everyone has beards. Right, but there, but there was kind of what you were describing with Kashrus, but with this one, which is a little weak, it's a, I mean, it's a much weaker idea that you're not supposed to shave. Um, there was like an understanding that if we're going to live in the world, that everyone's shaving, so I, I need to do that. And, and so we need to kind of, there's an intuition that this doesn't apply in this context, that the general community, the general non-Orthodox community had, or general Orthodox community had. Yeah. But doesn't it go back to the Mishnah that there are permissible ways to shave and there are impermissible ways to shave? And 
the only reason there are people running around who think you're not allowed to shave ever is because they have like their own Kabbalistic rationale for that chumrah. Right. But, like, okay. And so that's not, that's not totally well, I guess that's my well, same feeling about hashrut. It's the corner thing. Well, we'll that, like, right, right, right. right. No, 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 that's, <laughs> that's where I thought that's where. Like, so here, I'll I'll work with a couple. I'll work with two examples right. from the past <laughs> that and I was thinking. Of. Like this is talking about this situation, but not this. Situation. I'll work with two examples that I was thinking of. Um, one was grape juice for kiddush. This was actually a sticking point, I guess pun intended, um, from in, like when grape juice first started coming out, um, grape juice was considered like not from for Kiddush. Like I've even been told now in Kol Israel when we were trying to make Kiddush once, somebody came over to me, it's like, you really should use wine for Kiddush. They brought a bottle of wine, so I'm like, okay. But, but now I don't think it's such a weird thing. Like people make Kiddush on grape juice all the time, but this was like a real thing, like, 30, 40 years ago when grape juice first started being sold, like it was like the more lefty rabbis were like, yeah, grape juice is the same. And all like mm-hmm. the Orthodox rabbis were like, no, you need wine. Mm-hmm. You need I Kiddush feel like and wine. they do that just to separate themselves from each other. So, Wait, so they might, or whenever, whenever it first got its, like started I'm being so sold. I'm confused. I'm going to look this up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whenever it first started being sold, like commercially, that's what oh, I mean. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> or maybe it's all a politics because what? now all these Jewish wineries are losing money to the grape juice. Well, the grape juice well, were Jewish also. Jewish the, maybe they're reformed. The, um, the concept, what ended up happening though, essentially, is that there was like an intuition that grape juice works. And like we can use it with our kids. And, and it fit that it worked because it was made out of grapes, right? It's made out of grapes, but it's not wine. But like there was like this intuition. And the intuition literally like beat the... The rules at the time and it goes the other way too um like the one i was thinking of was machitza um the sources for machitza are are decent they're like there's like reasons that we have them and they're solid um but like they're not like so strong they're not like crazy strong there's no like real source that really says like there must like there must there's no like old source there's no old like Amara that says there must be a machitza in every synagogue just doesn't literally doesn't exist but if you look back there are actually like court cases about machitza and there was like this intuition that this was something that orthodox shuls or or about or balcony right i'm like Unless some type of separation people. no i mean like some type of separate oh. balcony or or yeah so there, there there was like this intuition that you needed a separation during the, during prayer services that like kind of won out which is, and now it's not really much of a question anymore. Um, like even, even like your most, um, like there are, I've even like, there are like egalitarian services that are still like even around here, I think, that mm-hmm. like have a machitza. Like that's not so unheard of, but if you were go back 50 years ago, they'd be like, what? Like, that or wouldn't make any they sense. Like They'll have like, They'll have like the three, yeah, women. right. So, but the fact that they even care to keep the machitza is, is, like, is like a product of this winning. Um, so, I mean, we can fit this into any future one. The women rabbi, I think, is really good. Um, in the end of the day, the sources are like, okay, they're not so strong that it's usser. It's like really not so strong. Um, and the intuition is, I think, getting stronger that it's okay. So it's basically gonna decide like, what's gonna, like what, what thing is gonna win? Like, is the intuition gonna get stronger? Are the people buying the sources are going to get stronger? Like, literally, it's just going to be like if Shul's higher than. 
like what's going to win. So we could work this with anything. You can think about anything and we can talk about it afterwards. Um, I just wanted to want, yeah. So at what point does this fall into like total anarchy? So <laughs> it, needs to, it needs to I think fit. I think we're there. Because it needs to fit two things. I think it's even, it's even more, it's even more specific than following law. Because I can read text and I can make text be whatever I want it to be, but I need two things. I need it to fit text, and I also need it to fit intuition of the time. It's actually harder. It seems like too much structure. Yeah, it seems like Wait, it's a lot. It's like un- my under- the reason I like some of this stuff is because I think about back in the... I, I have a whole thing about kashrut. I have like so many issues with it. And when I rationalize it, I'm like, right, because you raise certain... And I'm a veterinarian. You raise certain animals this way, this one's... You know, when you mix it, it's just healthier to do it this way. Pigs are more prone to this and this and that. Like, I appreciate how if you don't raise them properly, you're more prone to this disease or that disease, and then to separate it, it, it's healthier to me. But now I feel like agriculture, the industry, everything has changed so much that even, I don't even, it just, like, doesn't even make sense to me anymore. Why? Unless that's not the only reason to do it. And, right. Right. A lot of the rules seem so arbitrary to me. Just... And a lot, because a lot of them are this type of thing where there was this intuition, like, okay, we have, and then, so, when does it go from intuition to just ridiculous? So that's, and that's always the question. That's always going to be the question. And so the way this kind of works is that when it's in a time of intuition versus text, like we're in now with a whole bunch of things, um, like uh, one, one class we're going to do on on checking vegetables for bugs. We're like in that right now. Like how much do you need to check vegetables for bugs? So right now we're trying to figure it out, which we're not sure like how much do we really need because like the sources kind of seem to say that you need to more because we know more, but like there's this intuition, like what are you talking about? Like we've not done that forever. So like- you just boil it and they're gone. Right, so there's all these questions that like what is going to happen? So we're, we're in the stage where we need to wait for an equilibrium. I just want to, just one more point that I thought was really cool that he throws in at the end. About, and then we're, we're going to finish. Um, the, about the purpose of halacha. If halacha is this autonomous thing, this, cere- this thing that's satient, that's living, and is modable and non-modable at the same time in a living way, that it follows certain rules, but also kind of doesn't because it feels at times. Then, then pop- possibly we can use that idea to find a purpose in halacha. And he quotes a bunch of them, but I quoted one here: the Mishnah on Avot, Perkei Avot. The pasuk says, "Karut the words were carved on the tablets. Do not read carved. Rather, freedom. For there is no person that is free other than the person that is in study of Torah. Um, I lost the last word. Um, whoever studies Torah transcends himself. When you study Torah, what you're tapping into is an infinite autonomous system. You're tapping into something that's alive. And it's alive for much, much longer than you are. So you're 
you can't really be autonomous because you don't live forever, as Simon was saying all that way at the beginning. Because you, if somebody at the end of your life could possibly model your behavior for your entire life, could say, okay, so these are, these are the rules. When he has this fever, this is going to, like they could make the rules if they knew everything about you, they could make rules that literally created a robot that would live your life. But if something was infinitely long, if something went forever, you couldn't do that. So a person can't really be autonomous because they don't live forever. But the way they can be autonomous is if they tap into something that will. So possibly, we could say, based on this whole idea, is that the purpose of halacha is for us to tap into something autonomous to become autonomous. Because we're following rules that are modable and not modable at the same time, we're actually able to, to be satient in a way that we couldn't ourselves, which is kind of weird. But what, what that does is it allows us to be free in this way, in a way that we couldn't if we were just follow, living our lives. Because we'd kind of be following a behavior that we could model afterwards. And we could say, oh, it's deterministic on some level. But halacha isn't deterministic. And it isn't decided until people decide it, until you feel of what's going to happen. And so by connecting to it, um, you're able to truly be free in a way that you couldn't be otherwise. And I thought that, that, was, that was particularly beautiful. Um, so um, that's, that's it for this, for this year. I thought it was an interesting introduction to response in general. It won't be this long at, um, for um, every week. Um, and it won't be quite as many sources. Most of the time we'll be going through like one one big one to try and kind of be the posek, to try and like be the person deciding law, to try and like act the way they would act, um, to try and figure it out with them, kind of like be in a conversation with the posek. Um, and hopefully we can get to their same conclusion. Um, sometimes maybe purposely not, because we might pick one that we don't hold like. Um, that we don't do um, and that'll be interesting and it'll fit into all the things that Rachel was saying before about um, about when things fit into certain societal contexts and, and how we would hold to it nowadays and so that really happens when the intuition hits the hits the um, hits the posit where it hits the law and so often um, I see this happening I mean it's happening with Gordimer and Yisachar Katz all the time, mm-hmm. Rabbi Katz, um, Rabbi Gordimer and Rabbi Katz, I should say, um, where um, where he's like, where Rabbi Gordimer is like, the law, the Masorah is king, the law is king, tradition is king, and Rabbi Katz is like, no, we have this understanding um, of what the law should be, and every single time, I it's become a joke, it's become a joke with me, me and Rabbi Katz, actually, every time he's like, Rabbi Gordimer's wrong because like there's this moral understanding, and every single time I'm like, can't it be both? Like, can't can, like can't we find a law that's true that fits with our society and also fits the rules? And well, I think it's possible. Why can't you just say okay? What do you mean? Just okay. That's what you think. Oh yeah, but you want to be part of the conversation. <laughs> I probably shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rabbi. That was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I just want to end the recording. Thanks, everyone.